A, a number of years ago in London, uh, an unusual thing happened. A little girl fell off her bike, which is not that unusual, but it's what happened next that was, because she had the opportunity of a lifetime. She's sitting on the kerb in tears, knee bleeding, bike bent, when the Queen Mother is driven past in her Rolls Royce. She sees the little girl crying, and I guess it brings out the grandmother or the great-grandmother in her. Stop the car, says the Queen Mother. So the driver pulls over and the Queen Mother says to the little girl, hop in, we'll give you a lift home. To which the girl replies, no thank you, I'm not supposed to take lifts from strangers. And off she limps, pushing her bent bike all the way home when she had the opportunity for a lift from royalty. Uh, I wonder as that little girl got older whether she regretted missing a ride in the Royal Rolls Royce. But perhaps as far as she was concerned it was just some old lady in a big car. Uh, but it was really the Queen Mother. She was face to face with royalty and she didn't recognise it. And it's like that in our passage today. It's all about recognising your king when he comes. It's about recognising Jesus. And what we're going to see is that it's surprising the people who do recognise him as well as it's surprising the people who don't. So firstly, the outsider who did recognise. Our attention in, is shifting back from Peter in chapter 12 back to Saul and Barnabas in chapter 13. Now, they're based in Antioch, uh, which you may be able to see there on the map, but you need to make sure you're looking at the right Antioch because there are two. So this is the Antioch you want. It's called Syrian Antioch. Uh, and by the end of the chapter, they'll be in the other Antioch, which is called Pisidian Antioch, and that's up here. So two Antiochs. Uh, so they begin the chapter in Antioch chapter uh, in, in Antioch number one, and they've just arrived back from delivering the collection from those believers down to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's down the bottom, down here, and they've just made their way all the way back to Antioch. And at the start of chapter thirteen, we see that Saul and Barnabas are commissioned. Uh, they're set apart by the church there, and then they're sent out. Uh, for the work the Holy Spirit's got planned for them. Now, this is also the chapter where Luke starts calling Saul by his other name, by his Greek name, which is Paul. So keep that in mind. It's the same guy, Saul and Paul. Uh, but here at the start of the chapter, they're commissioned to go overseas. These are the first ever sent missionaries, unless you count Jonah. But I guess he's in, he was one too. Uh, so it's the sort of thing we do when we send missionaries overseas. Uh, and over the next few chapters, uh, if you look at the map, you can work out where they go. Uh, this is the first of Paul's famous missions. So firstly, they sail for Cyprus, verse 4. It's an island about the size of Tasmania. It's 100 kilometres off the coast. Uh, and notice a pattern that will continue from here all the way to the end of the book. The first thing they do when they land in town is they head for the Jewish synagogue in Salamis. Uh, to see if there are any Jews there who will recognise their king. Uh, from there they head across the island with their helper John Mark to the city of Paphos. 
Uh, now, it's here where you get our first surprise, because here is someone you would never expect to recognise Jesus as royalty. His name is Sergius Paulus. He's the proconsul. He's the Roman governor of the island. Uh, he's almost royalty himself. Verse 7, he invites Barnabas and Saul to explain their message to him. Now, you can read the details in verses 8 to 12 later on, but notice the results for Sergius Paulus. Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. The Roman proconsul of Cyprus, and he bows to a higher authority. He recognises that Jesus is his king as governor over him. It's very surprising. But I want to move on quickly to look at what happens at the next stopover. You can see where it goes on the map. Verse 13, Paul and Barnabas sail for the mainland, but rather than heading back the way they've come, they head north. They land at Perga, and from there they head inland and they arrive at Pisidian Antioch. Now again, the pattern's repeated. They go straight to the synagogue. And they sit down and they listen to the reading from the scriptures and then they're invited to speak. Now, if you've ever wondered what the Old Testament is all about, you haven't got round to reading it all yet, here's an opportunity you get to see it summarised. Uh, Paul stands up, he takes the listeners on a guided tour through their own history. Uh, from verse 17 to verse 22, he begins with Abraham, he, he jumps through Moses and he lands with King David. But then in verse 22, he jumps from King David right past the end of the Old Testament. And in verse 23, we read, From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Now, that's a whole lot of history that, that he's just jumping over. But that's because he's more interested in the target of it all, the culmination of it all. Jesus is the one who brings all of the Old Testament scriptures to a climax. The Old Testament finishes not with an answer but with a question. The Old Testament finishes with Israel waiting for a king. One of David's descendants promised by God, a king who will rule forever and who will never see decay. And Paul's conclusion as he over looks through the whole Old Testament, it's simple. That king has come. But will they recognise him? Well, now, from verse 23 onwards, uh, everything Paul says uh, is about recognising royalty, about the royal family of Israel. And he's going to give them some clues that have been sprinkled through about how they should be recognising their king. How do you recognise the Queen Mum? Well, maybe it's the smile, or the corgis, or the hats, or the Rolls Royce. Maybe that's a bit of a giveaway too. But how does Israel recognise her eternal king? Well, if you look carefully from verse 23 down to 39, uh, you'll see why the people of Israel should have recognised him. So Paul, firstly, verse 23, points out that God had promised him First reason. Second, verse 24 and 25, because John the Baptist came and prepared the way for him. He pointed him out. He made him obvious. He got people ready. But verse 27, the damning indictment. 
the people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognise Jesus as king. Promised, uh, foretold by, by John the Baptist, and yet they didn't recognise They executed him. But verse 30, here's the biggest piece of evidence. That wasn't the end of the story. Reason number three, uh, God raised him from the dead. Verse 31, plenty of people saw it, hard as it is to believe. Now those are the facts. That's what Paul and the apostles have been telling people. But notice how Paul goes on to emphasise the resurrection. The resurrection is the ultimate clue that he's royalty. It shows him to be the eternal king Israel had been waiting for. Verse 32, uh, he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he's fulfilled for us his children by raising up Jesus. It's in the resurrection of Jesus that Paul sees God fulfilling every promise. That's amazing, isn't it? Paul is preaching a sermon in a Jewish synagogue. It's not surprising he quotes from the Old Testament. There's a quote from Psalm 2. There are quotes from Isaiah. Uh, He reminds them that God made a promise to David's line uh, that, that David's line would rule forever. He promised David an eternal king. And then he says in verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16, where King David says to God, you, God, will not let your Holy One see decay. Now here's the point Paul goes on to make. The way it normally works with people, you're born, you die, you decay. 100% of people are born, they die, they decay. It happened to King David. So who's this psalm talking about? The Jews have been reading it for hundreds of years. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Who's it talking about? On the surface, David seems to be describing himself. You will not let your Holy One see decay. I'll survive. But Paul says it means more than that. Here's the clue. Paul is in the middle of talking about someone who died but didn't stay dead who was buried but didn't stay there. He's telling them about someone from David's line who didn't see decay, literally. And so he connects Jesus to this quote from Psalm 16. Jesus is the one that David was talking about all along, even if he didn't know it. That's the conclusion He comes to in verse 37. Have a look at verse 37. But the one God raised from the dead did not see decay. Which means he's the Holy One of Israel. He's the king God had promised. He's the king Israel were waiting for. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, so what? Uh, I mean, it's dry enough listening to... Paul preaching a sermon that's 2,000 years old without having to go back another 1,000 years for an ancient history lesson. But here's the point. All of the promises of the Old Testament point to Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. You may never have thought about your Old Testament like that. You might have thought that page in the middle of your Old Testament and your New Testament, that was the dividing line where Jesus starts. And I guess in a sense that's true. 
But the Old Testament is all about Jesus. That's why it's a history lesson that's relevant for us. Did you catch what Paul said back up in verse 26? Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it's to us that this message of salvation has been sent. God is sending Paul's hearers in Antioch, in that synagogue in Antioch, a message through the Old Testament. A message about Jesus. But it's not just a message for them back then. It's a message to us. Are you listening? The people of Jerusalem missed the lesson. Verse 27 says they didn't recognise Jesus. So make sure you don't miss the lesson. If you don't recognise Jesus as your king, you're missing something far more important than a ride in a Rolls Royce. If you reject him, you're missing the biggest act of God in history. And it's not just embarrassing and a good story to tell afterwards, it's fatal. Have a look at verse 38 and 39. Here's his application where he gets personal. If you don't recognise Jesus, here's what you miss out on. You miss out on escaping judgement. You miss out on the way out of the cycle of sin and death. Paul says in verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes, catch these words, Everyone who believes is justified from everything you couldn't be justified from by the law of Moses. Now that's a huge statement to be making in a Jewish synagogue. We probably don't even notice it. To be justified means to be declared righteous, to be counted innocent. And that's the problem with the law. With the law of Moses, with the Ten Commandments, with all the other laws... All they can do is point out where you fail. All they can do is condemn you. They can never do the reverse. They can never make you innocent because following them is what you have to do. It's like if you get caught by a speed camera, like the one up here outside the primary school, which I found out in my first few months of living here a while ago. Well, there's a speed camera there. Um, it's no good complaining after you get a ticket and saying, but I stayed behind, under the speed limit for all the other cameras along the Hume Highway. That keeping the law ten times should cancel out the one time I don't. It's no good. You can't ride in and use that as an excuse. Keeping the speed limit is what you're supposed to do. It's not a way of earning credit to pay for the one time when you don't. It doesn't work that way. It's not a gigantic balance beam, not speeding, outweighing speeding. It's the same with God's laws. Keeping them is what God expects. It doesn't build you up credit for when you break them. There's no forgiveness to be earned by keeping them. Laws can never justify you. They can only condemn. They can only catch when you're wrong. Like speed cameras. And so here are these Jews struggling to get right with God by keeping the law and the thing they most need is to be forgiven, to have their slate wiped clean. 
And Paul says that's exactly what Jesus has done in his death. He's taken God's punishment so that you can be restored to a relationship with him. Now that's exactly what we need too, even though we're not Jews. We need the chance to be put right with the God who created us. And Paul finishes with a warning. Verse 40, he says with another Old Testament quote, you need to learn the lesson from history. You need to take care that you don't miss out on recognising the king when he's staring you in the face. Paul says if you're scoffing, if you're saying it's all a load of nonsense, I don't believe it, then be careful because in the end you'll perish. The prophets said that. They said, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. I'm going to do something in your days you would never believe. Learn the lesson. Uh, Don't scoff, believe, so that you won't perish. So what happens? Well, verse 42, it's the best news many people have ever heard. They, They crowd around Paul and Barnabas and they say, that was great. Come back next week. We want to hear hear more. And it seems like a whole lot are converted right there. And then the next Saturday, just about the whole city is there. Everyone brought a friend. Uh, Jews bringing along their Gentile neighbours. That's verse 44. Almost the whole city gathers. But when the Jews see the crowds... And I guess, that, I guess that means the Jewish leaders here, the ones with the influence, they're filled with jealousy, just like the Jewish leaders were with Jesus. And they speak against what Paul's saying. And Paul and Barnabas answer them boldly. And they say, you had your chance. You needed help. You were sitting there in the gutter and you were offered a ride home in a Rolls Royce. But you said, no thanks, I'm not allowed to take a lift with strangers. He says in verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord commanded us, to be a light to the Gentiles, to take salvation to the ends of the earth, see if they'll recognise Jesus. Now, once again, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 49, which is a fascinating passage because God is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, you are my servant. You are to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, that explains why Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue first in every city he lands in. Because it's their job to be a light to the Gentiles in the city around them. It's their job to take the message of God's promised king to the nations. But again and again, they're not interested. And so here in Antioch, Paul says, I'm going to take the light myself. I'm going to be the light that takes the light of Jesus to the nations so that they will recognise and trust him. And that's really where we come in, isn't it? Do you do that? Do you recognise and trust Jesus? All these years away, all this distance away, when you see Jesus in the pages of the Bible, when you hear the message about 
uh, salvation and forgiveness, do you recognise royalty? The way that Roman proconsul did. The way the Jews and the Gentiles in Antioch did. Because recognising the king who doesn't see decay, it's the only way in to the kingdom that doesn't see decay. It's the only way to be saved from death and judgement. In the end, Paul and Barnabas are run out of town and they move on to their next town, which we'll see next week. And Paul says what it does is it shows that they don't consider themselves worthy of eternal life. Which is sort of a funny twist, I think, because the way to prove that you are worthy of eternal life is to recognise that you're not worthy of it. (laughs) That you're counting yourself a sinner someone who's lost and hurt and helpless and in the gutter. I'm not worthy. And then when you look to the one who lifts you up out of the gutter, when you look to Jesus, your king, that shows that you are counted worthy by him to receive eternal life. Learn the lesson from history. Do what the Gentiles do in verse 48. They're glad It's interesting, Catherine pointed out the joy at the start of chapter 13. Well, we've got it here at the end. The Gentiles in the other Antioch, they're glad and they honour the Lord. Uh, Sorry, they honour the word of the Lord, which is an interesting way of describing responding to the gospel. They honour the word of the Lord. How do you honour the word of the Lord? Uh, You believe it. You receive it. And we're told that all those who were appointed for eternal life believed. Recognise Jesus. Take him as your personal head of state. Do that and you'll know what it means to be truly forgiven with a fresh start and a fresh heart and justified from everything that you couldn't be justified by no matter how hard you try. Many of us have already done that. We've done it once, but we need to keep doing it. We need to wake up each morning and recognise that Jesus is the King who demands our loyalty, our allegiance, our heart, our voice, our life. He's the one who deserves that we love him with heart, soul, mind and strength. We're told not to make political statements from the pulpit generally, Uh, But Jesus actually wants us to be monarchists. Uh, He doesn't want us to be republicans, uh, at least when it comes to Jesus. He wants us to recognise our king. He wants him to give him our lives. He wants us to give him our lives. Uh, That's the way we continue to recognise royalty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we confess that at times uh, we fail to live as if we know Jesus as our King. Uh, we live as if we are King. Uh, we pray that you would help us to see, to trust and to honour Jesus. Amen.